So we're going to look at Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. Once again today, as we did last week, as he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. So as I noted, this is our second Sunday to look together at this passage. Last week, we zeroed in on the first three verses, verses 22 to 24, where we read the question that was asked of Jesus, Lord, how many are going to be saved? And although it was a speculative question of some interest, our Lord offers a response that's not a speculative answer, but it's a critical command. And in verse 24, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. And that was the focus of our attention last Sunday. We saw that the door which leads to salvation is indeed the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is a narrow door because to enter through him means you must give yourself to him with a devotion that is exclusive and total. The imperative in that verse the word strive, it means that in spite of pain, the pain of relinquishing your pride and your sin, and in some cases your things, you must not let nothing, nothing stand in the way of you entering that door into the life of Christ. The close of our time last time, I touched on why this is so important. And today, that's going to be the whole point, really, of our study today, as it was for the words of Jesus we just read. After telling his inquirer what he must do, Jesus proceeds to lay out why he must do it. In these seven verses, we can isolate, I think, three reasons given by Jesus why you, why you, why you must stop at nothing to enter the kingdom of God. And assure yourself a place in the number of those who are saved, those who will inhabit the eternal kingdom of our Savior. We find here that there is a deadline for the kingdom, there is a qualification for the kingdom, and there is a selection for the kingdom. So that's where we're headed today. First of all, there is a deadline for the kingdom. The first thing Jesus says in explaining the importance of entering the narrow door, there in verse 24, is many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, why is that? Why will these people who are actually seeking to enter the kingdom of God be unsuccessful in doing so? Does it have something to do with the door being narrow? Is that the problem? Is, that, uh, is, this, group of unu- is this a group of unusually large people who would not be able to fit through a narrow door? Well, the answer to that is no. Their inability to get through the door at this point has nothing to do with its narrowness. The problem for these people is that the door is closed. It's closed. 
Andre, I'm going to ask you to turn me down a little bit because I find myself getting a little bit excited and I don't want to blow people out uh, as I get revved up. Thank you, sir. The door's closed. This becomes clear as Jesus illustrates his point in verse 25. He says, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. What's your problem? Not the size of the doorway. Your problem is that the door is now locked. And the only reason you face a locked up door is that you have sought to enter too late. That's the situation Jesus is describing for us here. Here we have the head of the house, very generous, very hospitable, but a certain time, uh, at a certain time he puts everybody to bed and he locks the door and he hits the sack. Any traveler knows that uh, you'd better not bother somebody once they have gone to bed, unless it's really, really important, right? But you do it anyway, banging on the door, <laughs> yelling for the owner of the house to come and let you in. But the householder, the owner, isn't very sympathetic at this point. And this uh, reminded me of something that happened one evening at our house during a chilly winter night. You know how it is when it's chilly outside and you put your pajamas on and you crawl under the covers and in about two or three minutes, you know, after being under the covers, you start to feel very cozy, warm, and comfortable. Uh, well, one of those cold evenings, I, I beat my wife to bed. I didn't beat my wife. I, I, I got to bed first. <laughs> I got to bed first uh, by, by a couple of minutes. And I was laying there all snug and peaceful, and she crawls on the other side of the bed and gets settled in when I noticed that there's a light on. You know how, you know how that's like? There's a light on uh, downstairs. And so I do what any smart husband does. I said, honey, uh, there's a light on. Uh, you need to take, take care of that. Now, it's an unwritten rule, isn't it, that uh, the last person in bed is responsible to make sure that all the, all the lights are off. But she said to me, uh, I believe you were the last one in the kitchen. <laughs> And she was right, so I had to uh, get up out of my warm bed and walk downstairs to turn the light off in the kitchen. And I don't know if pain is the exact right word to describe that kind of experience, but it's certainly not, uh, not, not pleasant. In the story Jesus tells, the owner of the house doesn't argue here. He simply responds to the plea by saying there in verse 25, I do not know where you are from. And in verse 27, he actually says, get out of here. So you're stuck. If you are a traveler, you face a night out in the cold. But what Jesus is describing is mega times more critical than having to spend a night in the cold. If you wait to seek entrance into the kingdom of God, you will find yourself excluded, and here's a key word, eternally. Our Lord here teaches that there will be a day when many, not a few, many, he says, will seek to enter and will be denied. So the scene which Jesus describes, I mean, this is none other than the day of judgment that he has in view. On that day, Jesus will appear to men in his glory, in his majesty. Everyone will see the reality of his kingdom, and everyone is going to want to have a part at that point, as it is today. The church has to go out and invite people to Jesus. But a day is coming, a day is coming when millions of people will beg for entrance into Christ Jesus, King, Christ's kingdom, and they will be refused. The door of mercy, which stood open for centuries, will be shut. And that is when men will cry out to enter and will beat their hands and their fists and their heads on the door to no avail. To no avail. Speaking of Noah, okay. It must have been a similar scene when the ark began to float. Noah had warned 
people for years that a flood of judgment was coming upon the earth, and they just scoffed, made fun of Noah, and did nothing about it. They wanted no part of Noah's ark. Do you think that changed about the time the water reached their kneecaps? I can imagine what that must have been like. Probably there were many who were pounding on the, on the ark, asking to be let in. They, they sought to try, try to climb their way into that enormous boat, but the door to the ark had been shut. By whom? By, by whom? By God. And, and when the time comes, he will also shut the door that leads to his salvation. Those who watch the rain come and the ark float, just as Noah said was going to happen, they must have felt a woe that was beyond words. So it will be for many on that great day, says Jesus, when Christ returns to judge the world. Oh, you had a notion this Jesus thing was actually true, but you just put it off. There's always tomorrow, you, you said to yourself, when you've used up all your energy on the things of this world, maybe then you'll give Jesus the leftovers and enter into his kingdom. At that point, enter through the door. But you are very likely to wake up one day to find the door of God's mercy has been slammed shut and you will be another 1324 casualty, one of many who will seek to enter and will not be able. You see, dear ones, there is a deadline for entering the kingdom, a deadline. And, and, and do you know what? Nobody knows when it is. Well, that's complicated. I mean, suppose you were in a college class where you were given an assignment which no one in the class fulfilled in a timely fashion. Deadline for the assignment came, and none of the students had completed it, and the professor would have been perfectly just to give the entire class an F, but instead... He tells the students that he will, not, he will allow them to turn their papers in late, but that at a certain time, undisclosed time, no more papers will be accepted. So if you're in that class, what do you do at that point? What would you do? Uh, do you think it would be smart to put off the assignment until the end of the term? I mean, hey, if I, if I wanted a passing grade in that class, I'm getting on that assignment that very evening because I'm concerned that tomorrow may be the last possible day. Now, you can risk a failing grade, if you like, in a college class, but it is utter folly to risk eternity for such delay. The fact is, as long as you remain outside of the door, as long as you put off the claims of Jesus upon your life, you are playing Russian roulette with your soul. The door may shut on you. It could happen through your own death, or it may shut through the Lord's return. There is a deadline for the kingdom of God. In Matthew 25, there was a parable that we read there with the same lesson. It's a story about the ten virgins, a tale which has several elements that are, that, uh, that are, that are interesting and complicated, but the point, I think, is ultimately the same. These girls needed burning lamps to enter into the marriage feast, which would begin when the bridegroom showed up. And, and as it turns out, he arrived at midnight and half of the ten virgins were unprepared in that they had failed to buy a sufficient amount of oil for their lamps, and so they had to go out to the store late at night to get more oil, and they weren't there when the bridegroom arrived. Verse 10 of that chapter. While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready 
went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. There again, you get the image of a shut door, <laughs> a stark reality that will face those who are not prepared. Verse 11, later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not, I do not know you. The same response as the householder in Luke 13. Verse 13 sums up the message then. Be on the alert for you do not know <coughs> the day nor the hour. So head back to Luke 13. But do you see this? When our opportunity is gone, we do not know. So diligence to get ready, that's the only smart approach because there is a deadline for the kingdom of God. Secondly, I want you to see with me that there's a qualification for admission to the kingdom of God. This is taught here by any, uh, not by any positive statement, but by the clear implications of the negative statements. We'll look again at our text, verse 25. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. So the one called in verse 25, the head of the house, represents the Lord Jesus and in his position as judge. Twice here he addresses those who are refused entrance, and both times he says essentially the same thing. What does he say? He says, I do not know you. First time he said it, uh, the castaways responded in verse 26. But wait a second, we ate and drank in your presence... You taught in our streets. Well, that's interesting. What does that suggest? What are they implying by that? They seem to be expecting to gain entrance to glory because of their acquaintance with holy things. They are letting Jesus know that they were there when he was teaching in their particular city. They socialized with him when he visited their town as if their physical proximity to Jesus in his earthly walk would somehow qualify them for his eternal kingdom. But they are deceived, many in our day, deceived in similar ways. Don't think for one second that you are fit for eternal life simply because you have an acquaintance with the things of God. No, no. When you get shut out of heaven on the day of judgment, don't bother trying to remind the Lord that, hey, I was a member of North Park Church in Wexford, Pennsylvania. Or, hey, my Uncle George was a preacher. Or I had parents that were devoted Christ followers. The Lord not only knows those things, those things are irrelevant. They mean nothing because they are not what qualifies you for his kingdom. These people in our story were those who had been in the very presence of Jesus. They had been greatly privileged not only to be Jews who were taught of God's law, but they had even seen and heard the Lord himself, the Messiah. They were around him, but the Lord was not impressed by any of that. He simply says, I don't know where you are from. The NIV says, I do not know you or where you are from. And that may communicate more clearly, I think. In Matthew 7, identical context, verse 22, Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The point in either case, 
is the same. The judge is saying that mere acquaintance with him is inadequate. The qualification for admission to the kingdom is a personal relationship with the king. Qualification for admission to the kingdom is a personal relationship with Jesus the king. And this means you must go beyond knowing about Jesus. You must know him personally. He must know you. There has to be a relationship between the two of you. Now think about this with me. You may be quite religious. You may have a knowledge about spiritual things. You may be a hard worker in the church, but if you have no relationship, you have missed it. The whole idea of Christianity is to bring someone into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ where there is a continual flow of communication between man and God, where there is a continual expression of love between man and God. That is what we mean by a relationship. This is precisely what was lost in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. You'll recall that when they, when they ate of that forbidden fruit, they then responded by running away from God. And then God responded to their rebellion by expelling them from the garden, the place of his presence and blessing. The relationship was broken due to sin and the coming of Jesus Christ, his death to pay for our sin, his offer of forgiveness and grace. It's all designed to restore that relationship. What we are offered in the gospel is a restoration of our peace and our fellowship with God himself. And it is this relationship with God that the scriptures call eternal Life, John 17, 3, this is eternal life. Read it together with me. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What you enter when you go through the narrow door, we talked about last time, is a personal relationship with God through Jesus. Do you see that? Do you see that? Do you get that? Do you have that? Or do you simply have a familiarity with the things of God? Either you are a friend of Jesus or you are a stranger who will be shut out of the kingdom. And the one who is prepared to enter glory is the one who has entered through the narrow door into a relationship with Christ himself. And friend, either you have that, either you have that, or you have nothing. Nada. Jeremiah 9, great verse. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. What is the ground of our boasting? It is knowing God and all that other stuff matters not. It's not, you know the old saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. <laughs> it's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, that's really true. What counts in the spiritual realm is knowing God. That's the qualification for admission to the kingdom. So we've seen the deadline for the kingdom. We've seen the qualification for admission into the kingdom. Now let's consider the selection for the kingdom. And Jesus clearly here teaches that his eternal kingdom will include some and will banish others. Okay? There are the included 
and the banished. No universalism here. They're included in the banished, and we can learn something about both of these groups. Let's read again verses 28 to 30. In that place, he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out, and they will come from east and west and north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. And from this, you may gather that there are at least three types of folks who will be there in that number when the saints go marching in. First, he says there's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets. These can represent the saints of the old covenant, okay? They will be there in glory. They will be there in the kingdom of God, right alongside Gentile Christians like you and me. That's one group of special mention. Another group of the included is... Mentioned in verse 29, the Gentiles. Not all the Gentiles, but a good number of them. They will come from east, west, north, south, and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. That's to say there will be saved men and women from every corner of the planet. We're going to meet some of Maria's friends from Kenya when we gather together before the Lord. Now, this is a direct attack on the prevailing idea that would have been prominent in a lot of Jesus' hearers that only Jews were uh, constituting the kingdom of God. The kingdom over which Christ rules is a universal kingdom. There will be Old Testament Hebrews. There will be New Testament Gentiles. And thirdly, there will be this third group group is the religiously underprivileged. The religiously underprivileged. The Gentiles would probably fall in that category, most of them at least. I, I refer to the word of Jesus again in verse 30. Some who are last will be first. That would be Gentiles. Didn't have anything, didn't have the word of God, didn't have the privileges of being in, among the uh, chosen people. Some who are first, that would be the Jews who were taught of the law had the worship available to them, but they will be last. Understood in context, this statement means that some who have enjoyed very little religious privilege will be first in the kingdom. They will be great <coughs> in grace. So again, remember, Jesus is addressing Jews who had grown up with the privilege of a scriptural upbringing. These are the very ones who had heard him teach and seen his miracles. In terms of religious privilege, they are first. Christ is laboring here to convince them that they may be first in privilege and last in grace, while others who had known little of what they had had are exceedingly best. Some Gentiles, he says, will be first in the kingdom of God. I think of the Roman centurion who probably grew up in a household full of pagan superstitions, but when Jesus encountered him in the Gospels, it says Jesus marveled at the faith of this Roman centurion and pointed out that it was greater faith than anybody he had encountered in Israel itself. Last in privilege, first in grace. And you can look around this room and you can see here many who grew up outside the church, no parents who taught them or even loved them in a biblical way, and yet they now know God. They are now serving Him while so many of you who had every spiritual privilege available as you grew up, some of you have the weakest faith in the room. That's uh, it's not true in every case, I understand, but Jesus does say some 
who are first will be last. Some who are last will be first. So in the kingdom of God, you will find Old Testament saints, you will find Gentiles, and you will find some of the underprivileged. Okay, well, let's look at the category of the banished. Banished. That's a, is that a strong word. Not a word I use a lot, but it kind of hits me when I say it. Uh, banished from the kingdom of God. What an awful, awful thing that would be. But we know that many there are who will seek entrance, who will not be allowed in, and they will hear from Jesus those terrifying words, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, I never knew you. Definitely some of the most terrible words in all of the Bible. What makes the words so terrible is that they are spoken by Christ. They are final. There is no court of appeals beyond Jesus. They are eternal in their impact. Eternal life is knowing God. Glory is being forever with Him. Hell, on the other hand, is being totally separated from Him. Now, that doesn't sound terrible to the ungodly to be separated from God. They don't mind that at all, but they don't like to talk of a lake of fire. They don't like to talk about a place of torment, but those things are part of this separation. When you are banished from the presence of God, you are given over to the devil. When the time comes, you'll understand the import of those words, depart from me. You're the one who didn't want anything to do with God anyway. What you want, you will get. But when that time comes, your soul will be tormented with incredible and eternal regret. When Christ says, depart from me, verse 28 says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're all familiar with weeping. Some of us are familiar with gnashing of teeth. You wear a night guard? I wear a night guard. I guess I do some gnashing of teeth in my dreams. <laughs> weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeping is sadness. The gnashing of teeth is representative of anger. You will burn with anger and jealousy, for you will be able to see, it says, the blessings of the righteous. Verse 28 says, in that place, weeping and gnashing of teeth, they'll see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and, and compare their lot with the lot of the, of the blessed. And I cannot think of anything more horrible than that. Is it any wonder that Jesus says to us then, strive, strive, strive to enter that narrow door? Verse 30 says that among the banished will be some who had enjoyed in this life great privilege, the kind of people who had been able to hear Jesus teach. In spite of their privileges, they will not make it because they had no relationship with Him, and that is tragic. It's a tragic mistake to think that all is well with your soul because of your acquaintance with true religion. Think of my own father who never embraced Christ. And when the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons came to his door, he would dismiss them by saying, I have two sons that are preachers. It'll be well with me. Your acquaintance with true religion and those who represent it means nothing 
Now, you live in a Christianized nation. You go to a Bible-teaching church. You celebrate Christian holidays. Especially does my heart groan for you children of believing parents. Listen now to you. To you, it has been given a wonderful privilege to grow up in a home, to grow up in a church where Christ is loved, where his truth is taught. But you cannot get into heaven on your parents' passport. You cannot stand before God on the day of judgment and tell him, do you know who my parents are? These people in our story thought they were okay because Abraham was their great-great-great-great-grandfather and Jesus said, no, you too must enter through the narrow door. You too must have a personal relationship with me. And I plead with you, my young friend today, to make sure of this, that you personally know the Savior. All that we've looked at today was taught by Jesus as he presented the reasons why you should make every effort to enter that narrow door. He pointed out that there's a deadline, there's a qualifications, there's a selection for the kingdom. And frankly, Jesus is simply trying to get you to enter the narrow door by showing you how bad it will be for you if you fail to do so. Is he out to scare you into the kingdom? <laughs> what do you think? I think maybe he is, yeah. And I hope he has succeeded. Some of you remember the old commercial. I doubt if it's still on anymore. The purpose of which was to keep kids off of drugs. And uh, it would show you an egg. Remember this? And then it would show you an egg on a frying pan. And it would, say the egg, it would show you the egg and it would say, this is your brain. And then it would show you the egg in the frying pan. It would say, this is your brain on drugs. Seeking to make you afraid of getting caught up in such an addiction. I'm all for commercials like that. You try to direct your children's behavior in the same way, don't you, parents? I think you, uh, most of you do. You tell them the consequences of their poor choices, the potential consequences. You let them know there's a negative side, you, you know, there's a downside to eating too much. You try to convince them that smoking's not a great idea either. You try, to, you try to convince them that careless driving is a bad idea. You teach the little ones that playing with fire is not a wise thing to do. Good parenting promotes healthy fears. Right? Can I get an amen, parents? Promote healthy, healthy fears? You know, it's been, been a big subject all year. What's a healthy fear and what's an unhealthy fear? Right? Right? Uh, Jesus is promoting here a healthy fear, a fear of eternal banishment. I heard someone say, wouldn't it be cowardly of me to become a Christian just because I'm afraid of the consequences of not being one? <laughs> well, I would hope you have other reasons for becoming a Christian. I hope you can do it because it's right. I hope you can do it because it's true. I hope you can do it because it's good for you. I hope you can follow Christ because it is pleasing to God. But if nothing else, does it? Sure. Come to Jesus out of fear of banishment. Martin Mull, the old comedian, <laughs> used to do his comedy act while seated. And, and during his comedy act, 
he would smoke cigarettes. You ever watch old movies and you look around, you're like, everybody's smoking cigarettes in those movies from the 60s. He would sit there and smoke cigarette after cigarette after cigarette. And toward the end of his act, he stopped and said, I know what you're thinking. You really shouldn't be smoking so much. And he said, the way I look at it is this. Anybody can quit smoking. It takes a real man to stand up to cancer. Huh. It's one of those lines where you're like, is that funny? Do I laugh at that? And the reason it strikes us at least to some degree as funny is because it is folly dressed up to look macho. Bravado. You can keep that kind of bravado, my friend. Mull's line. <laughs> well, let's be honest here. There is nothing courageous about the way of sin. There's nothing courageous about walking straight towards judgment day unprepared. But you know what? I'm going to echo Mull's line. Anybody can become a Christian. Anybody can become a Christian. Anyone can enter this glorious kingdom and be saved. How many will do so? I do not know. I cannot tell. But I join with Jesus in urging you for Christ's sake to make sure that you will be in that number when the saints go marching in. And how do you get in that number? You enter by means of the door, his name is Jesus. And in that name, let us pray. Our blessed God and Father, we thank you so much for your son, for sending him to provide to us atonement, redemption, forgiveness, pardon, all that we need to enter into your presence and to provide something critical in addition, and that is the warning of the consequences of refusing. Father, we pray together right now for those things that may keep us from walking through that door, things we spoke of last week, maybe our self-righteousness, maybe a relationship we know you would have us lay down that we refuse to do so, maybe some possessions in which we find security and identity, Father, we pray today that you would enable us by your spirit to see the kingdom of Christ, to love that kingdom, to long for that kingdom, and to leave everything else behind as we run to Christ and through Christ enter into your eternal kingdom. Almighty God, I pray for the young people here, some of whom have lived with an excessive degree of spiritual comfort because of who mom and dad are, and where they've gone to church and whatever else it may be, stir their hearts, Lord, to personally step through by faith and repentance and enter into your kingdom to know you. Oh, God, we thank you that we get to know you for time and eternity. And we who do confess and testify that that is the greatest thing in our lives. And it is for us eternal life. Come and do business with us, O oh God.
in these closing moments and as we sing this closing hymn. And draw powerfully, boys and girls, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, to the Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.